after emphasizing the true identity of those in the church in Corinth as those people who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, the Apostle Paul then offered a prayer of thanksgiving for them that is especially encouraging and hopeful. And in this prayer, Paul points to God's faithfulness in calling them and in keeping them. Today, we will see Paul begin to address one of the biggest and most important problems in this church, unity. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquence, Wisdom, let, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe see that. In this first chapter of Paul's letter, God is mentioned 35 times in 31 verses either as God, Christ, or Lord. That's not counting the times the name Jesus is used along with the other names or when one of those names is with one of the other ones. But 35 times in 31 verses. This is striking. As every one of you who does some inductive Bible study knows, just from the observation stage. One of the first observations you do in studying the Word is find out what it says by looking at how it's organized and what key words are there. Very rarely do you see God's name mentioned so many times in so few verses. Obviously, Paul is emphasizing the Lord's calling and work in these people almost forcing them as they read to look up to him instead of in here to them where all the problems are. 
But now also, he's emphasizing how their quarreling does not reflect God's character. In fact, divisions and disunity in Christ's church are the very epitome of a horrible witness. Perhaps this is why Paul begins his rebukes with this particular issue. First, let's look at his appeal's tone. Knowing what's going on here in Corinth allows Paul to wisely approach them with care. And you notice it's the care of a brother in Christ here. Although he already began this letter with a clear, clear statement of his credentials as an apostle of Christ Jesus, called by the will of God there in the first verse. This appeal is vastly different from a demand. It's one of Paul's favorite ministry words. It's not a military command, but an exhortation or even an imploring uh, to come alongside and to hear and to act on what you hear. It also does not mean that he's going to gloss over the reality of what all is going on. Speaking the truth in love that Paul writes about in Ephesians 4 is on display right here. This is where you go to the Bible to figure out what something else means when the word is used somewhere else in the Bible. So speaking on the truth is being demonstrated here by Paul. He does not just ignore and leave them in their brokenness and sin. That is important because that is usually the first way that we use to what? Make excuses for not doing that. Well, we'll just ignore it or we'll just put up with it. Or we'll just go on and on and on and on. That would be unloving. So he must speak the truth. But he also does not just start out by crushing them with some heavy-handed, harsh verbiage either. So he must speak in love, which he does. I appeal to you, brothers... He's not just throwing that word around. This is familial language. The serious truth of what he will be saying is then reflected in the next part. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not throwing that around either. He is called by God to be God's messenger, his apostle, a church founder, and yet he is identifying with them as also a brother in Christ at the same time. The serious truth of what he's saying is reflected in that. Well, what are his instructions? We see that in the second part of verse 10. There's three. They look simple until you realize that they have to do this. First, that all of you agree. Some of you should be smiling. This is not easy. 
Agree here means to speak the same thing, to be in harmony with one another. They should be able to confess their faith in Christ together in one accord and be at peace with each other. Secondly, that there be no divisions among you. And the word there is schismata. You should recognize that right off the bat. It's where we get the word schism or schismatic. He's not talking about heresies or false teachings here. In other words, they must work things out with one another. They must mend the tears and the fissures in their relationships. This means that they're going to have to figure out new ways or methods of relating to one another. Instead of trying to feel more important than everyone else by following this leader or that leader. And that's what's going on, which we'll get into in just a minute. But he's laying this groundwork first and foremost. Third, that you be united in the same mind or understanding and the same judgment. What in the world does that include? Well, let's get at what Paul means here. United here means to make the body of Christ perfectly joined together, to mend what has been torn apart. He's going to use the body of Christ all the way through this letter. But if you start off with this picture of just use us, we are united in the body of Christ. For this local church, we've got every piece of the body of Christ. Some of you wish you you were another part. Some of you are proud of the one that you have because it stands out or it's gorgeous or whatever. What happens in division is it's like somebody tearing apart the body, crushing it, wounding it, making it bleed, whatever works for you to get the picture. It's not pretty. We know that. This word is used of fishermen mending their nets. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. What needs to be mended or or restored to harmony? What? What is it exactly? Paul says two things. First, their mind, their understanding. Paul is calling them to adjust their opinions and worldviews. And here's the key. To be in line with the gospel. The gospel that they've received. He's not looking for a mechanical, robotic uniformity. We know that's not what he's looking at. But harmony about the basics of the faith. In other words, the gospel is supposed to shape their thinking and their worldview. Hint, instead of the other way around which I think we heard a lot about in Sunday school today. The grid or the lens that they see life through should be the truth about God, the truth about us, 
and what God has done in Christ to redeem people for himself. That should be the filter by which we view the world, our situation, our family, our friends, our work, our neighborhood, how we relate in all those situations. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, should not be a periphery add-on to their own understanding and opinions and judgments. That's the way we get in trouble. It's not an add-on. It's the main course. Second here we see their judgment. Translated different ways, but what they become then has to be formed and aligned by the truth of the gospel. What they are committed to is another way to think about it. What they are committed to has to be formed and aligned by the truth of the gospel. Paul is having to write them precisely because they have allowed their thinking to wander away from the truth of the gospel and do what? And adopt the Corinthian versions of what is important and vital and worthy of attention. What do you think those are? They haven't changed any down through history except certain places seem to excel and be known for these things more than other places. You there yet? What's important to the Corinthians? See if this sounds any different from here. What you look like. How versatile you are. How impressive you are. What other people think of you? How do you show that to other people? By what you have. By the way you act. And especially by who you hang around with. And who you're trying to get to know. And whose opinions you listen to. Now, all this is evident by their divisions and their quarreling and their immorality and their suing each other and the lack of genuine love. And the worst, I think, is the toleration of all of it in a church. The specific details of their divisions and quarreling are given in verses 11 through 17. And this is probably just an overview, quick view. The cliff notes of Paul's letter about this issue. So, there's this woman named Chloe. And she's mentioned in the letter that he writes back to them. You can read this letter a hundred times and miss that. Oh, look, somebody reported to Paul what was going on. Oh, yeah? Before you write a letter like this, would you put the gal's name who sent some of her household or some of her people that worked at her house? She was evidently pretty wealthy. 
because she sent somebody across the Aegean Sea or a couple of people to find Paul in Ephesus and tell him this is what's really going on because he's already heard about this. So what does that tell you about her? She's not real worried about her reputation in this church, probably because she's one of the ones that has a stand-up and is feeling pretty alone. She knows the quarreling is causing a bad reputation. And she wants to Paul not she wants Paul not to be, you know, unsure about who and what is doing what. Just take courage. Yeah, and she probably said something like, and you can use my name. Because she's already made her stand. And it was probably the right way. Appealing. We can't do this. This is not of Christ. We've got to fix this. And it met no ears that were willing to hear. So, is she demonstrating love by doing this? Yes, she's doing exactly what Paul is doing and confronting it as well. She went to the founder of the church, and it looks like that she was probably a very early convert here, and so she valued Paul's ministry enough to get Paul the info. Now, the kicker is this. The Corinthians earlier letter to with Paul they had sent Paul some questions that he deals with in this letter and they're pretty good questions about how theology works out in day-to-day life but they had left out a lot of details and she's filling in those details Paul you're getting a half picture They're asking these questions because there is all sorts of things going on here that are shaming the name of Christ. I hope you're impressed with her courage and Paul's courage to deal honestly with it. Paul himself defines the Corinthians quarreling. What I mean is, how many times have you seen Paul say that? It's like I was trying to think of one or two. I mean, he asked rhetorical questions all through his letters, but this is like, okay, look, what do I mean? That each one of you says, what does that do? It doesn't leave any person in the church out of this conversation. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Well, let's look at each one briefly here. Paul was obviously the founding missionary apostle. He was there a year and a half. So many members continue to look to his leadership, but it's been three years since he left. And in the meantime, a whole bunch of other ministers had taught and preached there. Apollos came first 
He was brilliant, brilliant Old Testament scholar and preacher from Alexandria, which is Egypt. Gifted speaker, eloquent, academic, smart, and a blast to listen to, evidently. Very gifted. Maybe the better educated and those who valued rhetorical speaking were probably drawn to him. These are guesses, just to give us an idea. And then there's Cephas, who is Peter, spokesman of the Twelve, and the leader for 20 years of the mission to the Jews in Palestine. This is 55 A.D., 20 years about. So doubtless he had many supporters, probably especially among the Jewish cohort. And then Christ is listed. No telling all the reasons some quarreled with the others because of his previous teaching, etc. I read everything I could about this, and nobody had a clue. But there was some really interesting ideas that we don't need to go into here of what they could have been thinking or which little contingent they were and were they really followers of Christ or was this a division that was had Christ's teaching mixed up and not meaning what he really meant. So do you think any of these four taught heresy? No. All of these men listed were fabulous, solid teachers, although Apollos needed some work from the old to the new covenant, and Aquila and Priscilla are the ones that helped him out on that. But what he taught was on target, evidently. Nobody, nobody of these was, was teaching heresy. So you think, well, that should be a good thing. Man, they've got guys. Can you imagine? If you were going to list four guys that came here and out in the middle of nowhere in the panhandle of Texas, just pick four. You've heard their names. We study, we read their books, watch videos. Just imagine that. that that's the kind of people that were coming through here. Okay, now that that's obvious. So in verses 14 through 16, Paul deals with one of the obvious reasons. And that was what? Who baptized who? We find out that one of the divisions was between people quarreling about the importance of being baptized by one of these men. Not just being there, especially when they were doing the preaching or teaching, but he was the one that baptized them. The word baptize in this passage occurs six times in five verses. Again, it was a problem. But this just adds to the underlying issue that so many of these people seemed unaware of. They still didn't get what the big issue was. Despite Paul's teaching about the security of the Christian's identity in Christ... The Corinthians were trying to find their identity, or as James said this morning, their worth 
in one of the divisions that Paul had identified here or some other one that he didn't list. In other words, they were looking for something that would give them more meaning and enable them to be in a more privileged position than the other people in their church. Another way to say this, they were attempting to be personally validated and lifted up because of being identified with someone else's success and status. That's not a problem for any of us, is it? We hopefully say, no, not here. But what about everywhere else? It's like thinking, I will associate with so-and-so, and the more popular, wealthy, upper class, and honored they are, by my association and allegiance to them, I'll be lifted up and viewed as someone important and valuable and worthy. Folks, I hope I don't have to tell you this, but this is the core of what our culture is wrapped around today. Who's with who? Where did I get to go with? Can I hang with them? I, don't, I hate to do this, but when I was a kid, there were no entourages around celebrities that we were cared about. Yeah, there was. Hollywood was booming, and that was the big thing, but do you have an entourage? Would you like to be in somebody's entourage? Would you feel more important if you were with somebody's entourage? Many, many people figure out their whole lives in a way to run with or hang with some people like that. That's their whole strategy in life. What we used to call junior high school, this is middle, this is whatever it is now, middle school. But it's grown-ups, which tells you something. Many people never do grow up. The fallacy is that no matter what person or what cause or what job or what school or what role, etc., that you want to identify with, you are believing a false promise. If you think that that person or that cause, etc., will fulfill your desire to be valued. It may be temporary, but it's not going anywhere. And it causes divisions. Why? Because everybody that's doing that is only out for themselves. They don't care about the other people. Their whole object is to step on them to get here or to look better than them. It's just like a stew of selfishness being stirred and whipped up, and it is hot. And why is all this? Because primarily identifying with anything in this world in a way that seeks to lift yourself up in glory and importance and value is denying the only one who can satisfy your soul. Because there's only one who made you. And he's the only one worthy of that kind of adulation, worth, 
worship, service, love, and care. And then you can figure out the rest of it, and it'll be in line with what? The truth about him, about the gospel. This has to come first. If you're not serving him in your work, in your relationships, in whatever it is, then this is when this kind of stuff happens. And we have some words for those kind of people in the extreme. Do you know what they are? The people who are so selfish, their whole lives is stepping, making other people look foolish whenever you're around. There's words for people like that, and they're not nice. At least they didn't used to be. This, it does not come by a self-identifying with whatever rocks your boat. It only comes in recognizing your Savior as Jesus Christ who made you to know and to enjoy and serve and love him. Only your creator can satisfy your soul. If you do not believe that, then you will be running to these other things and getting your worth and identity from everything else in the world. Even if they're good, they'll still get you off. See, this is why only God can answer that who am I question. You know, that's the first question you ask when you meet somebody. You don't ask, well, who are you? You say, what do you do? Because that's the way we self-identify. That's where we get our worth. why people go nuts when they can't do what they do anymore we all fight that our hope is in who he is and he made us to be and his plan for us there it won't be in self-love and self-importance and self-actualization do you realize how much on any media platform that that you want to look at how much is revolves around that S-E-L-F word. And now it's worshipped. People are on talk shows about it. Tell me how you achieve this. Well, first you've got to, what do you hear first? First you've got to love yourself. So much that you are it. Totally. You see, Jesus proved what true love is by dying on the cross for your sin. So true love is not satisfying your own greatest desire so that you can look better and be more whatever than everybody else. He came to save you from your pervasive and selfish sin. He's given himself for you. He's purchased those who believe him by his own blood. No other person or cause will ever be able to do that. Do you notice the cause word has come up? I mentioned that. Because you can self-identify with a cause just as easily as with a person. And it may be a good cause. 
It may be a cause that's so good that it makes a lot of Christians look like they don't care about anything. True? But if that's your identity and it's a cause and you think it's a good cause and you think that's just showing what Jesus means and you never hear about him anywhere, it's not because of his motivation to do it, you're just in as much dangerous territory as anybody else. You cannot do it for yourself. And we live in an age of falsely believing that any person can accomplish their own personal dream, and you always hear the P word. With passion everywhere, all the time. If you do this, if you do this, if you follow this. Friday's USA Today had a full-page article on a gal named Rachel Hollis, who most of you should go, oh, I like her. Don't let me see that. No. She's the most popular self-help guru on the planet right now. She's been on every talk show. She talks at conferences. She's wonderful. She's exciting. She's easy to listen to. She's funny. She degrades herself in front of everybody, but shows that she can still get her dream no matter how filthy she talks or whatever else happens. She calls herself a Christian. Their message, these kind of people, it's enslaving. It's so attractive. It's full of lies and truth. It's what you want to hear about yourself. It's okay if you... Because all you got to do is this, and you can get there. Hang in there. It's amazing how much has been written about her in the last year or so. And she's just one. This is garbage, and it's very attractively packaged, easy to find anywhere, and it's extremely popular. And if I was with any other group of people and I didn't know where they were, but I knew that they lived in this world and I mentioned her name and I said that right now, they'd, I'd be crucified right there on the spot. But I'm not with them. I'm with you. And we need to know the truth about some of these people. We can become fierce evangelists for political parties, for diets, for methods of parenting, for education. The list is endless. And even these things can give us a sense of identity and purpose insofar as they make us different than or distinct from other people. And if that's why we're doing it, then even some good causes like that, some healthy things like that, can be taken the wrong way and lifting you up so much that you miss the whole point. And Christ will not be pointed to in those situations. The Corinthians had this issue big time. So what we learn from this is that factionalism is always at the symptom of a much bigger issue. 
anytime you see factionalism, there's a lot more going on. And this person's right, and they're wrong, and they're doing it the wrong way. All those things may be true, but there's usually a lot more underneath it. Make no mistake, Christian leaders and churches can so easily slip into actually preventing or inhibiting what God really desires in his church to be. Corinth is one example of this. And we have the opportunity as we go through this book to think soberly, diligently about how Paul describes these issues and what he prescribes for them. The Corinthians adapted Christian doctrine to fit their mental thinking or their framework rather than allowing the gospel to shape their worldview. It's upside down. In other words, they molded Christian teaching to fit their culture and needs. And the example is baptism. I'm more important than you because Paul baptized me. And you know what? Later on, the Lord's Supper, they even desecrated. But he waits till chapter 10 and 11 to get to that. In chapter 12, verse 12, he writes, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though they, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. What does that mean, so it is with Christ? Substitute the words. For just as Christ is one and has many members, and all the members of Christ, though many are the church, Christ is the church. Well, I kind of thought that. We're united to him. He's the head. Christ is the church. So the next question, Paul's second question is, was Paul crucified for you? We would call that a dumb question. It's one that, obviously not. But he has to ask it because they're behaving like it meant something more. And they could easily slip into, well, does that mean that Paul is your Savior now since you're worshiping him and following him and identifying with him? Get it? Third question, are were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because if I'm claiming, well, I was baptized by so-and-so. I was baptized by so-and-so. I was baptized by so-and-so. Isn't that what I'm kind of, my attitude really is down in my heart? All of these questions together make crystal clear that the Corinthians had made the doctrine of the cross just a symbol or a relic that they didn't really appreciate or want to glory in. Why? Because they wanted to make themselves important. And their sin at this basic level opened the doors to the whole church fighting about who was more important and powerful and admired and gifted, etc., etc. This is so bad that in verses 14 through 16, Paul tells them that he thanks God that he didn't baptize many of them at all. It's not that he wouldn't have just gloried in it. 
He only mentions three people. One of them's whole household went in. But do you get his point here? Paul's most important calling was to what? Him, his gift, evangelize. That didn't mean that he dismisses the importance of baptizing. No. But rather to insist that baptism is entirely dependent on and subsidiary to preaching the gospel. In other words, good evangelism has to come before somebody can be baptized. Every Christian who believes in Christ as a result of the gospel penetrating the heart must be baptized in obedience, we're called to, as an initiatory, observable entrance into God's kingdom of Christ. Baptism is not what saves a person, but it is an evidence and declaration of what God has done for that person in Christ. It's a public identification with Christ. The issue here is identification. Why do you feel worthy or not worthy? If baptism was really necessary for salvation, would Paul have said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom? You get the picture there that Paul wasn't really exciting to listen to of himself. But because the power of God was going through his word as he excellently preached it and taught it, man, did people come to listen to him. That's the way it's supposed to work. So Paul's identified the biggest problem in this church, and he's demonstrated why it cannot go unattended. Can you imagine getting this letter and me reading it to you if we were fighting like cats and dogs in here and had been for years? Not pretty, is it? Thank goodness. His grace is upon us. Because this kind of problem can't be healed or corrected without a huge change of thinking and attitude, which is why he said that in verse 10, united in the same mind and the same judgment. And hopefully, they'll see how sinful they have been and why, and then they'll hopefully turn by God's grace back to his calling and purpose, and they'll see how their behavior is no different from the Corinthian people that are pagans that do not know Christ and that are living in ways that are so destructive, hopefully they will consider all the other issues that Paul brings up in this letter after hearing this one. I, me, I would have probably just wanted to put that thing down right there and not have to listen to the rest of it. Hopefully the Lord will do a mighty work in opening their eyes bringing them in the plan through the pain of dealing with all this. Hopefully, they will see the Lord's work in restoring them once again, His amazing grace. Well, we get to celebrate the supper here, which is a picture of us unified in Christ, in His body. 
because of what he's done for us. So this is, a, this is what we're doing. This is to feed our souls. And hopefully it'll, it'll be on top of the, this message from 1 Corinthians where we understand what we're called to be because of who he's made us. Our identity is in Christ. And that we will be not just okay with that, but so thankful for that. Scripture teaches us we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe Christ. So as we sing, let the words of this hymn refresh and encourage your faith in him.